Queens, and welcome to the Outer Court, where outsiders get to become insiders and all are welcome. Here, we will build a community guided by truth and healing. So good to have you all back. I am once again, as always, super excited for today's episode. Um, I have another very special guest for you, uh, my friend Dee. And let me just tell you a little bit about Dee before I let her say hi to you guys. Um, so Dee is a master chef, uh, let me tell you. Um, she has, is it your bachelor's in business, right? So she's a business master, CEO in the making, and now um, you're pursuing midwifery, is that correct? Yes, yes. So she is literally just a jack of all trades, and I just love how she just keeps reinventing herself and becoming like the bigger, better version of her like with every step, um, and she is such a dear friend and someone who is so passionate about uh, racial justice and starting conversations about racism and white supremacy. And so I asked her to come on the podcast today to have that conversation with me and with all of you here at the Outer Court. So Dee, thank you for being here. I am so happy to have you. It is my pleasure. I'm so excited to be here and I'm so excited to just talk to you today. I am probably more excited. So why don't mm -hmm. um, we just start with me just asking like who you are. Tell us a little bit about yourself, how you came to be the D that you are today, um, and what do we need to know about you? Ooh, good question. Um, so like you already kind of said, I, I'm just really big on growth and hence why I find myself, you know, in a sense, reinventing myself. Um, life has been quite a journey thus far, but I tend to go wherever I'm passionate about, wherever I can find myself doing something that um, inspires me, that just makes me want to get up and move, you know? Um, and that really centers around helping people. Um, the older I've gotten, I realize I just genuinely love to help people. I love to see people happy. I love to see people safe. I love to see people um, being them, their best selves. And so um, a little bit about me currently, um, I, I find myself on a path of trying to always figure out how I can meet the needs um, that I see around me. And I personally have life experience with um, the intersectionality between racial injustice and um, Black maternal injustice. Yeah. Um, and so that's what's led me down this path to midwifery, but specifically, um, I'm in the process of becoming a doula right now. Um, and I really just want to see more people become educated on the realities that so many of us face that 
go unknown, really. Um, yeah. And I just want to see a better world created in the healthcare system um, for women and families who look like me. Um, so I hope that answers your question in general. Yeah, absolutely. The person you're speaking to now. Yeah, and even though, I mean, our conversation isn't necessarily just about um, the, I should say, lack of maternal health care um, right. for women of color, but the statistics that I continue to read about just like the, um, is it maternal mortality? Is that correct term? The maternal mortality rates yes, among um, black women, especially, but just women of color in general is mm-hmm. at an offensive rate for the United States being, you know, one of the top, if not the top um, countries in the world, at least, you know, like financially, structurally speaking, to have the high rate of um, maternal mortality rates that they have. Absolutely. It's um, definitely not okay. So I know that that's definitely uh, kind of a war zone that you're going to be stepping into there. And I mean, I don't even, wishing you luck is not good enough <laughs> because you need a lot more than luck to help you with that. But it's just disappointing, isn't it? I mean, disappointing isn't even a strong enough word. Ugh. But what we are here to talk about today, um, as I've already said, to talk just kind of about um, racism and white supremacy, but most specifically um, within the structure of the modern church. Mm -hmm. And um, Dee's going to share with us her experiences with that. And I think we're just going to kind of chat about our thoughts about that in general today. Um, But... I guess, um, you know, something that Dee was sharing with me when we were kind of having a chat before this, uh, because your first experiences within uh, the the walls of a church were in multicultural church settings. Is that right? No, actually. Um, my first church experience on my own um, as a teenager was a black Baptist church. A black Baptist church. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so you didn't really run into like the, the white church, I guess we'll call it until much later on. Uh, yeah. A, a few years later I was exposed. Yes. So, and when was the first time that you had that experience? Um, I would say, are you talking non-multicultural, but predominantly white? Okay. I would say where we met then. Okay. Um, Yeah. So you're already in college by the time Mm -hmm. um, that you come in. And maybe for just reference, you can say, at what age did you start attending church? Because you, you didn't, I guess you guys don't know this, but you didn't, you know, grow up going to church. Um, or would you say you didn't even grow up as a Christian at all? I technically grew up as a Christian. That was the environment I was around. Like that okay. was only religion. Um, yeah. and a 
few times, maybe a few Easter's throughout my childhood. Okay. You know, my mom would dress me up and take me to church as most black families do. Um, But I didn't start, you know, actually believing in the faith and going to church for myself until I was about 16. Okay. So then from like 16 to 2021, is it that you were at when you started college? Yeah, I was about 20. Mm-hmm. It's hard to get everyone's ages right because there's such like a mix of groups. Um, so for right. like four or five years, your experience of church was mainly black. Is that right? Black and multicultural. Yes. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. So then what was it like for you kind of coming from this uh, predominantly like black and multicultural church experience to coming into then an environment that was predominantly white? Um, so my story is a little, not to say tricky, but I would say uncommon. Um, and that's because my first two years coming into a predominantly white college, I was also in a time in my life where everything had been flipped upside down. I was going through a great loss and I really... Um, you know, the first year of grief for me was just autopilot. So everything going on around me, it wasn't like I um, started going to a predominantly white church and realized I started going to a predominantly white church and I was surrounded by mainly white people. I didn't have that culture shock because I was in my own world. Um, However, I would say year two, as I, you know, started to get a grip on life again, um, certain things started to stand out to me. Um, And not even necessarily stand out, but I was able to hear more and see more. Um, Okay. Like you kind of woke up a little bit. Exactly. My awakening began to happen in that second year. And would you say, um, because you were kind of on this autopilot for the first year or two, Um, were you then just not even really aware of like the nuances and the differences in the environment that you had kind of stepped into? Yeah, definitely. Um, that, the whole autopilot thing for sure. But also I am still like this at my core. It's very natural for me to just off the bat, try to find the best in people and things. Um, and so at the time, I, I, I just had rose-colored glasses on. I was just like, yeah. no, every, it's, a, it's a church. Everybody's great. Like, there's no right. issues. Like, life is good. And then yeah. other people that look like me, other students at the time were telling me, like, no, this is not our experience. That's not. Oh, okay. And I would be like, what? What do, you, what do you mean? And I think all of these folks are great. So... And I think, you know, it's common, too, when you come into just any place and any environment that's new, there is this, like, excitement that kind of washes over things and make things that aren't shiny and pretty look shiny and pretty. And it kind of takes time for the disillusionment. Did I say that right? Disillusionment Mm -hmm. (laughs) to kick in. Um, I think that's a common experience, too. And I think you had... Mm -hmm a little more on top of that with the grief that you were dealing with, which by the way, I was um, talking to Johannes and I, cause 
he doesn't know you and he was asking me like who's Mm -hmm. this person d that you're talking to and i was telling him like one of my first impressions of you was just how like impressed i was by you but also somehow maybe like concerned for you because i knew like just before you started college it was like within weeks that you lost your mom is that right 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 and Um, i expected mm -hmm. you just to like take a year off or something do like a gap year and you came and I said what she's gonna power through this anyways and so I had like right away like a ton of respect for you but I was also like is she okay like is she gonna make it (laughs) you were spot on I tell you you were spot on I had some strength but baby I was wrecked (laughs) yeah but anyways I get a soft topic, but, <laughs> but so then once you kind of started realizing what was happening around you and just the environment, um, and I'm going to say the racial tension that existed on your campus, um, what did you kind of decide to, or how did you decide to deal with that, respond to it? Okay, so I feel like I kind of have to give some backstory to like, yeah, absolutely answer this question and make it make sense. So um, I've already touched on like the first two years for me. Um, and I'd like to mention that within that second year, the world around us was also changing, not just um, at the university we we're at, but just the world. Um well, really, the country, yeah. America. Because what year would that have been? That was, like, 2015, 2016, okay. I want to so say. you have, like, Trump campaigning and already stirring right. up tons of, like, I don't even know what the word is for what he did, but you have the rise of yeah, the rise white of supremacy. hate and white supremacy and bigotry and all of that and then 2016 even before then before president trump started campaigning there was also an increase of live footage and recorded footage of black people being murdered Okay. By law enforcement. And I think I'm going to have to say this to set the tone wherever I go always, because everyone doesn't matter who you are. I think there's um, the great potential for this to be forgotten, but black people being terrorized and murdered in broad daylight is nothing new. The only thing that yeah. is new is it can now be done. I would say it's not even new. It's new or the um, occurrences of it happening, but it can now be done, you know, and completely caught on footage and the yeah. results are still the same. So, um, you know, the only thing that's new is a video camera on a phone. Which basically. also, yeah, I guess on the phone, right. But we've also been seeing people, Black people being murdered on um, footage for decades. Right. That's nothing new as well. Um, but the phone aspect, the accessibility of it. Um, so 
person after person after person was being murdered um and it was being recorded or reported and what really brought about my awakening of oh wow I'm somewhere new and this is not the smoke and mirrors is starting to fade for me was um the white people around me the response from them to these murders to these things happening were appalling and I started to realize like what like you guys one it was a mixture of responses so some folks just didn't care it was like not news it was like okay whatever oh yeah that happened and let me go about my life other folks was like I literally had people tell me to my face initially when getting the news another person has been murdered on camera watch the video and their first response is to say oh they were they probably deserved it they were probably like some thug and did something bad and so the police officer was doing their job i've literally had white folks tell me that and then um other people peers and such started I guess, showing their true colors in a sense, making racial slurs, just racial tension started to build on its own in that environment. Um, And in my opinion, you know, unprovoked, there's no reason why you should walk up to a table in the cafeteria and have someone start saying the N-word in my presence. But um, the changings of you know, the racial tensions in America definitely affected the environment. I was in the church environment that I was in, and I was just really saddened by the response to a lot of the people around me. And it also became clear that it wasn't a safe place to grieve. Yeah, It wasn't a safe place to say, you know, what do we do now? Like, how do we respond to this? It just, it was like a uncomfortable taboo thing to talk about because you didn't know if this person was going to come at you crazy or the next person just blatantly wasn't going to care. Um, so for me, to answer your question now that we have some backstory, um, I went into, okay, there has to be a solution. Like, this is not going to work. And I had the idea to kind of establish some changes at the, on the campus um, that would make it a safer place for people to talk about things that would make it a more comfortable place for people of color because it was very uncomfortable. Um, and lo and behold, there are a few other students with the same um, mind frame and same goals, along with a faculty member who supposedly had the same goals. And we all came together and started something called the Multicultural Student Union with the purpose of serving the, the campus and um, the students, really, um, to create some change. And would you say that um, the the students who started to be involved, because I think when you have like a club on campus, you kind of want to like recruit other students as well. 
is my understanding of campus clubs. Mm -hmm. You want to kind of involve as many um, people as you can. Did you kind of get enthusiasm from other students wanting to um, join your group or what was kind of the reaction that you got once forming this club? Um, I think the reaction was true to uh, the environment at the time. So a majority, not all, majority of white students were like, this is dumb. Why do we need this? More tensions arose, more microaggressions mm-hmm. arose. Um, most, not all, students of color were supportive um, and wanting to see the club grow, um, whether, you know, they joined or just, you know, showed solidarity with it. And then there were also some students of color who were like me in my first two years, like, um, I don't, still uncomfortable with accepting the realities um, of how things were and the fact that something like the multicultural student union was needed. Yeah. Those are Yeah. I think it's interesting that um, you were saying a lot of the students were asking, okay, why do we need this? Because uh, I feel like I see that just in churches across the board is that privilege really shows in that that when you have a white majority, they don't understand the needs of the minority that is present. And it's kind of like this apathy that exists, I want to say, out of just the privilege that they have of their needs being met and when they're not met, being recognized. Mm -hmm. Um, And something that has always kind of bothered me about that Um, especially within the church, is that, um, you know, we believe that Jesus came, you know, was born in Bethlehem and was himself like a minority in the culture that he was born in. Mm -hmm. But now today, 2020, 2020, 2021, you know, when we're the majority when, you know, we're so fat on our own privilege that we don't bother to look to the needs of the minority. That's an issue. Because, I mean, yeah, you have something to say. I'll let you talk because I could go on. Yeah, I I don't even think it's a matter of... I don't think the real issue is based in minority versus majority. I think when um, this awakening to racism still existing in in America came about for the majority of Americans, um, we kind of fixated on this conversation between majority versus minority. And I don't know actual statistics and factual um, numbers of how many white people there are in America versus how many non-white people there are in America. Yeah, that's a really good point. But I think the real issue lies in the doctrination of America and the separation of America. So we, traditionally, it's, you know, we've been separated on purpose. So when, I guess, in the setting of the 
um, school that we went to, there were definitely less black and brown people, non-white people. But I think, which in a sense creates a minority, but I really would like to shift the conversation to the fact that the reason why it was predominantly white was for a reason, you know, the same indoctrination of racism in America. And here you have a Christian Bible institution not reflecting anything but America's racial tendencies. Yeah. And so when you say the doctrination of America, what do you mean when you say that for someone who might not know? So for me, when I say that, I mean the... I'm talking about the systems of America. So you think about the establishment of America, this land was stolen and um, then built upon racism, built upon all men are capitalizing if they're white and landowning men. That doctrination. And so that foundation, you know, affects absolutely everything so that's exactly what I mean okay so then as you said let's just kind of shift the conversation to the church in general and when we or when I say the church I mean specifically like the western church within not just Mm -hmm. America but within what we consider the western world so like Europe and North America um, because it's not one place or one church or one institution. It's like an institutional systemic issue that we see across the board. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's important to point out is it's, you know, we could talk about the individual churches and places that you've walked into or that I've walked into, but it's almost like, symptomatic of the deeper issue right um and we're gonna solve that issue today no yeah (laughs) (laughs) oh we're trying Um, day by day but you know something um actually that maybe you could add to this right now that just popped into my mind out of nowhere is i think a few years back, and you did this more than once, you actually did, um, I don't know what it was called, but you did, like, a tour of the South. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, where you visited, like, different places mm-hmm. from the civil rights movement and, um, like, important places within, um, like, the slave trade, I think. You can kind of correct me and say exactly. Yeah. No, you're... Did. Jordan stays spot on. I'm always impressed by your memory. Oh. Um, <laughs> so you got the the meat and bones of it. The skeleton of it, it was called the Southern Civil Rights Tour, hosted okay. through the multicultural church I started going to in my last years of um, my education. And it was literally life-changing because... Prior to, you know, that tour and um, being a part of 
the Department for Racial um, Racial Reconciliation at the church I was going to. Um, I was kind of just in this place of like knowing things were terrible, but not really understanding why, because I think most of us go through this. Well, not most of us, really almost all of us go through this because schools don't teach the true American history. Right. It's a very biased thing. I'm, I'm hoping most of us know by now, but um, the tour really was full of going to um, historical places in the South that held the accounts of history with a different perspective, typically from maybe the slaves' perspective or just Black people in general, whether it was the civil rights um, movement. So, for instance, we stopped in Louisiana and we went to a place called, um, blinking on the name, it's a museum. I might have to get back to you on the name. Um, but it's the only museum in America that is on a plantation told from the slave's perspective. Every wow. other museum you go to on a plantation is told from the slave owner's perspective. And they make it seem that as though slavery was this great thing. And the slaves were happy. Wow. And the slave owners were doing, you know, wonderful things. Yeah, they're just hanging out, um, singing songs, living in harmony. Right. Right. It's great. Um, so I, it's called the Whitney Plantation. There we go. The Whitney um, Plantation. Yes, I highly recommend for everyone to go there. Life changing. Um, we also went to like the Lorraine Museum where Martin, like Martin, um, I'm blanking, not blanking Martin. on names, I'm fumbling. Uh, Martin, Luther, Martin King. Luther King Jr. Yeah. Um, was assassinated, and that was also a life changing experience. Getting to hear um, not only his story, but the story of those who were also a part of the movement um, from a much different perspective than I had ever heard. Um, mm. Traveling to the NAACPA and learning about the civil rights movement and actually what it was and how it went down. Um, so, yeah, there's so many places. There's such a wealth of resources and knowledge out there that kind of are hidden, hidden gems that I'd like to share. Yeah, and you said you did that through a church you were at at the time, correct? Yes. So yes. was it they organized it, or was it like um, they just had a group go to something that was already organized? Do you know what I mean? Right. No, so it was organized through the church. Okay. Yeah. And how was that like for you to be able to have your church provide something like that to you? Um. So I was on the back end of it. I was um, an intern for, like I mentioned, the they have different departments. And so okay. this tour um, was through the Department of Racial Reconciliation, which that department also does like racial um, reconciliation workshops and provides other services. So being on the back end was really transformative for my life, just... I hadn't ever been to a church that 
had a department like that or talked about race in America um, and how it intersects with faith. It was really, the things I learned there, I still keep with me today. Um, it, it was that safe place for me. It was a place to figure out what to do. It was a place to ponder and question how faith interacts with racism. Um, I'm like forever grateful for that department. It's still ongoing and they're still doing amazing things. So um, I'm really thankful that I, I got an opportunity to be a part and experience that at a church. Yeah. And you know that um, this Department of Racial Reconciliation, it's a term that I've heard very few times. Um, mm. And maybe it's just because my church experience has always been like in a smaller setting where mm -hmm. there aren't really departments. It's just like a big group of people and we all come together. Um, but I'm wondering if at least for bigger churches who are able to provide more services, if they would all start to ask themselves, you know, should we also be having some kind of center for racial reconciliation if then that would kind of flip how the majority of churches in America look? Would it look more inclusive or would it even make a difference? Because obviously the issue is bigger, but I wonder if that's a step in the right direction or not. That's a really great question. Um, from my experience, there are smaller churches that are seeking to address the topic of racism. And um, I know this because the church that I, you know, used to intern and then eventually work at, um, we would get inquiries, like other churches, smaller churches would reach out and say, hey, like, can you come out and help us? Can you host a workshop or a series of workshops to um, help either our, you know, leadership and our um, support teams or can you come and help like our overall congregation? Um, and some of these churches were uh, multicultural, but I would say a lot more of them were like predominantly white churches. And so even though they're inquiring and even though they're saying, hey, can you come help us? They're still, when you get there to host the workshops and when mm -hmm. you get there, to have these tough conversations, um, there is not just pushback, but there's just a sense of uncomfortability, like, oh, wait, th this is too much. Like, I, I didn't really want this or um, kind of just like, yeah, a lack of acceptance of really racism, a lack of acceptance of how the color of our skin affects our life experiences. And so it made things difficult. So to answer your question, I don't know if every church having a department for racial reconciliation would really create a change. I think it more so matters of the intent that a person has, the, the yeah, that's a good heart point. that a person has, yeah. you know. 
it kind of, if I could go off on a really quick side note. um, Yeah. It's, to me, I perceive it the same. I absolutely despise um, companies, institutions, anybody using (laughs) this terminology in this position of, what is it, race and equity officers or like, oh, I have like a race and equity department or a race and equity officer. Okay, I've never heard that term. So you have to explain that to me. (laughs) You probably have. And and the thing when it it comes to, um, you know, these types of conversations and all of it, it's literally the same thing with a bunch of different names. So, (laughs) yeah, um, a lot of schools in light of the, the past few years and everything happening in the country have taken on, like, race and diversity chairs and officers and people to make you know campuses better and that was actually one of the things that we initially asked for um, for the multicultural student union at the institute that we were at Um, but by the time I left it, it dawned on me like this is not beneficial for anyone because if you study organizational dynamics and just how institutes work of any kind, no matter the size, there's this cycle where if a a problem arises, the institution is going to try to, you know, keep a good relationship with the people that it serves. And so they do just enough to make it seem as though the issue is resolved, but yet the cycle continues. And so for me, in my opinion, the, the race and diversity or racial equity officers and all of that and these different institutions and companies and such, they really are just used for that smoke and mirrors effect. It's like, we have a person handling all that, so we don't have to do the real work. We don't have to really look at ourselves and say, in my position of authority, how can I actually create change? Okay. And so that it, it, your question makes me think of that. Having a department or an office doesn't necessarily guarantee by any means that real change is going to happen. It's really right. holding the people in the actual positions accountable and those people kind of having a change of heart and saying, hey, I might have done things this way in the past, but maybe I shouldn't continue to do things this way. Let me do things differently. So I hope that answers your question. Yeah. That's my little side note there. Yeah. It would just, unless there's like a deep internal change of intention and of heart, any department you add on isn't going to make any lasting changes, basically. Right. Right. Yeah. Like giving the nerd your homework. (laughs) You're not doing your homework and you don't really learn. That's 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 pretty much it. Your homework. (laughs) Yeah. Like, hey, ace this for me. Gotcha. Right. So my goodness. I guess what I want to kind of ask you about too and bring into the conversation, because I think it's a big part of your story and where you're at now, um, is 
you actually went abroad for a semester. You went, was it Spain and Morocco that you went to? Yes, and as well as Israel. In Israel, three. okay. Mm-hmm. I didn't even realize you were in Israel. Girl, uh, yes. <laughs> wow, you've been more cool places than I have. Um, so you went to Spain, you went to Morocco, you went to Israel. Um, and what did you kind of walk away with from that experience? And from just kind of being out of the U.S.? And being not in a multicultural setting, but being in a other cultural setting, like how was that for you? Wow, it was again life changing. Um, there's so many things I could say, but let me kind of simplify it. So, Spain and Morocco were lovely lovely places I would love to return I long of the days of returning um and there there's different factors to it so Spain and Morocco we had um field workers um people there to guide us and like you know show us day-to-day how to get around like tour guides things to do exactly all of that we didn't have that in Israel okay um but Overall, I would say the trip really transformed the way I I perceived God. It transformed the way I perceived the world and um, how God interacts with people. And um, it kind of like, I don't, I I can't say it was the the beginning of my journey to where I am now, but it kind of was a catalyst for me of just changing everything I thought I knew. Um, By the time we got to Israel, when we got there, we didn't have a field worker at all the whole time. Um, And we went during holy season. So Easter and all the events surrounding. Okay. Um, And so that was extreme culture shock. And also just so eye-opening in regards to Christianity, to religion, and um, how people interact with each other based off of the Bible and based off of politics. Mm. Um, Israel. I don't, yeah. I, I went with a team of 11 people including myself and I was the only one like completely losing my mind like this (laughs) place is insane and this was literally we went our our trip started uh, that semester started um the month Trump was inaugurated oh wow so those tensions as well it was just it was a lot and um yeah (laughs) walking all of the holy lands like we did the whole tour of just so many places in the bible and just seeing the war seeing the the tension and the hate that people had because of their religious beliefs was like literally made me sick like when I got back the trip was incredible up until that point when I got back I was a wreck just from being Could in that Could you give an example of that? 
Oh, there's so many. Okay. So for instance, I had no idea going in that um, the old city um, where a lot of biblical things took place um, in Israel. So in Jerusalem is divided into four quarters. And so you have, I, I don't know how many people know that. I didn't know that, but you have the Christian quarter, you have the I want to say Jewish quarter, you have the Muslim quarter, and then you have like the Aramaic Christian quarter. And the church of the Skepter, I think it's called the place Mm -hmm. where most people believe that Jesus was um, um, in his tomb and rose. Um, The tour guide told us, he informed us that I don't know if things are still that way, but at that time, there was so much fighting between the two Christian quarters, like so much tension between them. The They had to give the key to the imam, the Muslim oh, wow. leader, to open up the church every day because they like the, the, the tensions were so high. Um, so it wasn't even like one religion against the other. It was one sect of Christianity against the other. And you said one was exactly. Aramaic Christian, but then what was the other? You know, I guess just a bigger scope of Christianity. Yeah. Um, were were it, they like Israeli Christians then? I'm, I'm assuming so. Okay. I'm assuming so. I don't know all the details of you know what fell under. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't really matter. I was just curious. Yeah, I'm sure you could do a deep dive. I, I'm sure it goes way deeper than what I touched on. But what I touched sure. on was enough. Mm-hmm. So yeah, um, that's one example, just, yeah, high tension. And so when you came back, um, you said that you kind of learned a lot about how, I think you said as how God functions and how he relates to people. Yeah, yeah. Um, Coming from, you know, the West and a version of Christianity that I had been believing in and um, following for about, I think at that time, five, six years of my life, and then going around the, not all the way around the world, but going across the world to see other believers um, interact with God completely different. Um, and interact with the Bible completely different and have different interpretations of it. Um, that was like, oh, an awakening for me that one God is just so complex in a, in, in a way that I don't think we could really ever understand. And I've heard that before, you know, in the Western church, I've heard that preached on just how vast God is. But then when you really see like, and can at least comprehend that there's billions of people in the world and they all view him differently and they all um, interact with him differently. Yeah. And most of them believe that their way is the right way and that they have the right interpretation and the right God. Just seeing that in firsthand, whether it was in Spain, seeing how Christians interacted with God and this is how we do church. This is how Christianity should be going to Morocco 
and um, seeing Muslims interact with God and believing that their way was the right way and then finishing it off in Israel and seeing a hodgepodge of people literally at war, hating each other because their faith, their God was the right one. Um, made me think like, okay, so God himself created us all and has relationships with us all. I can't be even begin to fathom what that looks like. I'm like, God handle that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then as far as just people, I'm just like, it really changed me to become a much more accepting person. It changed me to understand that what I may have believed was, you know, the answer or, you know, what I felt like I had figured out, um, it let me loosen the grip on that, that belief and say, you know, I'm open to learning. I'm open to differences. I'm open to, um, not trying to make everyone like me. So I think that's really a, a, a Western thing. I feel like when I got back, I felt like, Mm. Oh, this is where I get that from that. Everybody has to be this way. Okay. Um, Everything has to be in a box and have a label. And yeah, we have yeah. to know how to call something or it's uncomfortable. Yeah. Or even just there's really a right way to do something. Because you, you go to other places and people live their life entirely different. And they're just fine. Absolutely, They're just fine. So, yeah, that trip, those were my biggest takeaways as far as God and how people are able to interact with him. Like, it's, it's all so different. So that... I have like a two-part question for you with you saying all that. Uh, So stick with me here. For Um, sure. And if it seems like I'm jumping all over the place, I apologize. I just have like, I could make this like a six, seven hour podcast with you. And I don't want to do that to everyone listening. Um, But so what I'm wondering is, um, you know, having growing up in America Mm -hmm. and having um, this like deep rooted foundation of just racism of white supremacy everywhere you go Mm -hmm. Um, and then you coming into the church years later um, in your life and having already been exposed to that for um, 16 years how did that if it did um, affect how you saw yourself in relationship to God um, and did that change after you kind of had this exposure to how people interact with God around the world who are um, not only of different races but different cultures as well does that make sense can you repeat the beginning of it yeah Good question. Um, so the first part of the question, then I can ask my second question after if that okay. helps. But my first question is just um, growing up in America and having just this um, constant of racism, of white supremacy, you know, everywhere. Um, did that in any way affect how you saw yourself in relationship to God being a black woman? Mm. Uh, did that make sense 
Yeah, it does. That's you can answer that and then I can re-ask question. the question if that helps. <laughs> okay, let's do that. Um, that's a really great question. And um, I really, it just amazes me. I For sure, no, I'm not the only one. But growing up, so I was born in 93. Um, growing up, the realities of racism in America were not, known and um, experienced the way that they are now. Um, So I didn't grow, I I grew up in a city full of black and brown people. There's very few white people and they were predominantly police officers. So um, those interactions typically were not great, but they weren't also, you know, like a daily thing. So I can't say that racism definitely, whether you're aware of it or not, has an effect on you and your identity because it's societal. You know, there's societal things that are taught to you and you don't even know it. They're just, it's just the way that they are. Right. Right. So there's that aspect. But I, I, I didn't grow up aware of racism in America because of, you know, being falsely, history being falsely taught in school, and then my experience having the privilege of being around people like me, that look like me. Um, So it didn't help that when I I came to the faith that I was also surrounded by people that look like me. Um, When I was exposed to it later on as an adult, um, just the differences in the church and my identity as a black woman. Um, I would say I kind of I upon me awakening to these realities and like, oh, like racism isn't just in America, it's like heavily in the church as well. I went through a brief phase of feeling maybe like I had to create space for myself like I had to be like I had to show up for myself and be like hey I'm here and I'm valid and regardless of what you think of me I have something to say I have something to offer you don't get to just overlook me and treat me however you want to treat me Um, and having to do that in a church setting it, it, it was definitely I don't know I guess just weird it's very weird to like be studying the Bible or being taught about, you know, the Bible and how we should live life and love one another and, and all these things. But then the people that are teaching it or the people that you're learning it beside turn around and leave the, the church building or leave the classroom and act completely different, you yeah. know? So... I, I hope that answers your question. Um, I didn't grow up with it having to behave this way, having to right. adjust this way. But um, as I got because, older, it was like, mm. oh, sorry. no, go ahead. No, please, please okay. add or clarify. No, because I'm just thinking, you know, um, not that I grew up. I always use this term grew up, but I don't mean like I grew up as a child, but grew mm-hmm. up, you know, from the point where I became a Christian on of this message of God as being, you know, my defender, being my advocate, being the one who Mm. kind of takes up the torch for me. And I just wonder, 
you know, having the experience that you had, um, did you get to experience God that way or even have the chance wow. to, um, wow. experience what that means, you know? Wow. That's, that's a heavy hitter, Jordan. Wow. Sorry. <laughs> no, 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 no. Don't be sorry. That I think. I wish more people asked that question. Like, I wish it was a common topic of discussion because I think that's such an important part of all of this that we often don't even consider or think about. Wow. You're actually taking me back. Like, this is an aha moment for me. Like, that's, wow. What a question. Take a moment. Wow. Okay. I'm going to have to really process that after this. Oh my goodness. Okay. So what comes to my mind immediately is the um, Southern Civil Rights Tour going to the Whitney Plantation. One of the first stops, I don't want to give too much away about the museum, but one of the first stops you make is to a church on the grounds of the plantation that was for the slaves. Okay. And, you know, they take you in there and tell you about what it was like to be a slave and have faith in God and how the slaves used to believe that, you know, God was their protector, that God was basically, you know, this, all the things you just mentioned that most churches teach here in America that God is, right? And I remember leaving there and feeling so inspired and so encouraged and like strengthened in my faith in that moment. But then fast forward to now, I sometimes think about that moment and I feel completely opposite. I feel like that is one of the things maybe I even picked up on, um, like for instance, my study abroad trip and just different life experiences that sometimes we're taught about God and we're told to believe a version of God inspired by the Bible. But reality, I think we make God in our own image a lot and we we create a God that is not actually true to who God is, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Whether it be in relation to how God heals or how God protects you know it's not it's not a thing life is not a thing the bible shouldn't be a thing where it's like you have this recipe you do this this and this and you get this result like you cannot control god you cannot tell god what to do and how to do it right unfortunately and so yeah. yeah i think for A lot of Christians, whether they consider this or not, it might even just be an internal thing, but like with everything happening around us in this country, where is God? Like, where is this protecting God? Where is this God that will come and rescue his people, his devout people who pray to him and pray for change and pray for protection? Yeah. That that mother, the black mother who's son will will never return home but she prays for him every single day to do so where is god then 
Um, that's that's such a heavy, heavy hitting question of just a lot of times we're taught that if we live a certain way and do certain things and follow this recipe that we'll get the results that we want. And right. it, it just doesn't work like that. And I don't, it doesn't make me angry at God. I wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly believe God exists. Um, but I just don't think in the way that we're taught to believe so. Yeah. The, the being that we're taught to believe that God is. Um, so, yeah, I honestly would probably have a better answer if I had more time to think about it. But I don't, when it comes to just living here on this earth, being a Black woman, having, you know, family that I consider and think about every single day and what they might encounter along with myself. Um, I don't hold to believing in God as this being that protects from terrorism and harm. Mm. And I think that's the best answer I could give you, the most honest answer I could give you right now to answer that question. I just, and and not to say, um, you know, that's a negative on my view of God or my relation to God. It's more just like a realistic thing, you know? Yeah, it's like, absolutely. If I expect you, Jordan, to live in Germany and show up for me, if somebody comes after me right now, that would it's be unrealistic because that's not <laughs> that's not who you are. It's impossible, like you know. Um. So yeah, I I've just chosen to change my perspective of God versus, um. I guess just what people tell you you should believe. Right. I guess. But, you know, I think something that you said right now is made me really think because you almost started to form this lament of where is God? Mm. And I think that's an important thing. If you're listening to this to kind of stop and take a minute and soak in, because I think, um, you know, when I read through scripture, when I especially, you know, the Psalms, they're full of laments of where are you God why have you forsaken me God you know I think it's an uncomfortable tension that people don't like to sit in of just lamenting and saying where are you in this because you're supposed to be this or be that for me right now um and I know lots of people kind of like to read through those parts or skip those parts and go to like the happy triumphal end. Um, but I think even Jesus, when he was on the cross, we see him say like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right. Mm. And I also think about, um, Or rather, I question, no, I don't know what to say for this right now, but I think about that, and I think about that so many people's story right now of 
um, you know, mothers losing their sons, wives losing their husbands, or vice versa, you know, losing their daughters, um, to police violence, to just, um, I think of um, Ahmad Aubrey, just not not a police officer, not just a boy on a run. Yeah, one person taking the life of another. Right. right. Um, there is a whole community of people hurting and scared, mm-hmm. and instead of the church saying we need to do better. We need to mourn with those who mourn, grieve with those who grieve. We need to protect those in our circle. They'd rather make it political and Mm -hmm. say, well, no, Black Lives Matter is a terrorist group or um, they shouldn't be rioting. You know, they'd rather politicize these issues then stop and see these are humans. This isn't a political issue. This is a human issue. Um, And I don't have a solution for that. I don't think you have a solution for that, but I think, you know, who I know the person of Jesus to be, if he could show up for just a minute in America in 2021 or just in the Western world. Cause I don't want to say just America because I think it goes outside of America too. Cause you see it in Canada, you see it in Europe, you know? Um, I mean, I, I think it exists. Racism exists in every culture. It just looks different. Mm-hmm. Um, so if he could step onto the world again for a minute as a human, I think about how he would react and, you know, people like like to think of Jesus as this peace-loving hippie guy um, who's just white and beautiful with these long, luscious blonde locks and piercing blue eyes. Um, But the person who I remember reading about was none of those things, you know. I mean, he might have loved real peace. Um, He might have that, Mm -hmm. but he was a dark-skinned Middle Eastern man who experienced racial injustice, who experienced social injustice. And when he saw people defiling his church, he started flipping tables and cursing at people and got angry. And I think we would see that. And I don't have, it's not a question. It's just a thought that I'm giving right, right. now in response to yeah. what you said. But Yeah. And that's, that's, I think, a good yet interesting thought to have because it, it goes back to, I think, just human tendency to create God in our own image. So for yeah, you you pose that question or you pose that thought to the masses, and you'll have so many different responses. Oh, God would probably do. Jesus would do this, or Jesus would do that. And 
we can't say for sure that's one not necessarily a question um but just like a thought like what would that be like um but something you touched on that has you know got me thinking and is something for me to take away really from this conversation and reflect upon is the idea of lament and um I'm sure well I imagine I could be wrong but most of your listeners will probably take on lament and the same perspective and the same heart as you um possibly took that of where is God but my lament is a bit different and I, I do just want to share it for anyone who might be listening, who might take on a different approach, a similar approach um, of a lament to me. But my lament is more so, I, I just will never forget standing in that church on that plantation and thinking about how my ancestors hoped and believed in God to come and rescue them from their masters, from their terrorizers, their torturers. And here we are in 2021, still facing the same issues at the hands of the great, great grandchildren, not even great, the grandchildren of some of these folks, right? And my lament is like, our beliefs, I've, I will, it's not my jam. It's not my intent to ever um, place up a idea or structure for someone to believe a certain way. But my lament um, is really just for everyone that holds on to a belief that brings heartache and pain in the sense of again I I just wonder if the version of God being this kind of knight in shining armor or this this desire for God to be a knight in shining armor and come and solve the world's issues we've never seen that that's not recorded in the Bible that's not a thing Right. Um, And I'm not talking about Jesus dying on the cross for sins. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about day to day, how people choose to use their free will and treat one another. God has never just swooped in and been like, yo, don't bully my kid. I'm going to put you in time out. Like, that's not how he does things. Right. So my limit is really, truly just for the people who hold on to that hope and that hope turns into resentment, that hope turns into a deep pain of like, God, where are you? But it's like, that is such a deep pain as someone, it just, it's, it's very important to me. I, I just to shift it from the topic of race I know what it's like to hold on to a version of God that's not accurate and how detrimental it could be. For instance, for me, I held on to the belief in the version of God that God was a healer. And if you fully believed 
that he was going to heal a certain person, he would, in, for instance, my mother. When my mother died, I it shook my faith. It knocked me off of my feet, knocked the wind out of me in regards to my faith because I was like, I just knew God was going to heal her. You know, and it's the same applied to any aspect of life. Believing God is going to swoop in and save us from racism, swoop in and end the wars. You know, that could create, like, if you fully believe that, that could create such a pain in you when it doesn't happen. Um, And I just, yeah, I, I guess to bring it back, I'm processing this, but my limit is not the God, where are you? But it's like, God, maybe we're waiting for the wrong things and hurting ourselves in the process. Yeah. I still have to process that and unpack that. But that's my, I just, yeah, want to point out my limit is a bit different. I'm not waiting for that knight in shining armor. Yeah. No, I think that's beautiful, Dee, and thank you so much for speaking up about that and saying that. And I did not see this conversation going this way, (laughs) but I'm really glad that it did. Mm -hmm. And I almost want to kind of end this here because I feel like what you've created, I love it because it's very uncomfortable, and I just want to let us all kind of sit in this tension that we have right now with what you've said and just take our time to just process and sit in that tension of the lament that you shared and whatever Mm -hmm. your lament looks like that's listening to this because we each have our own, I think, Um, especially um, I feel like the last year we have all racked up a good amount of things to lament on. Yeah. Um, and maybe we all just need to take a step back and ask what that is for each of us and examine that and kind of sit in that uncomfortability. You know, you talked about hope, that hope that um, this white knight would show up and hope, I think, is one of my least favorite words because mm. hope means that you don't know how things are going to end. You don't know if you're going to get what you're hoping for. It means you're open to disappointment, open to heartbreak. Um, so I hate that you just mentioned that word. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, um, trigger warning. My bad. But uh, no, that's fine. Um <laughs> But hope does create that tension of wanting something so bad, Mm -hmm. but not knowing if you're going to get it because it's a hope. It's not a certainty. Mm -hmm. Good way of thinking it. That's real. And I think we each, especially if you're here in the outer court, you know, we're here because we have all these hopes for what the church could be, for what, you know, Christianity could be that we haven't experienced and yeah let's just take a moment each of us to think about what that is and lament that and I'm just I just want to end it like that
that's all for today's episode here at the Outer Court. Don't forget, for more podcast updates and news, you can follow me on at outer.court on Instagram. Until next time, friends. 